associated with hessianfirm.com and hatemeditations.com. Welcome to Necropolis. This is Jason again, also known as Lone Goat from the Necro Classical Project Goatcraft. Today, Shelly is still MIA. I'm doing episodes back to back this weekend. He is moving. He has bought a new house and he is getting ready to have some spawning going on there with his wife and all that. So good congratulations to Shelly and finding a spawning grounds, you know, for future offspring and all that. Um, you know, I'm, he'll be back next weekend. Um, so filling in for Shelly today is Mr. Rafael from Portugal. He is the editor of hessianfirm.com. Thank you very much for filling in for Shelly today, Rafael. Thank you for having me again, Jason. Yes, sir. Uh, I think you're a great guy, very insightful, very smart. So looking forward to your contribution Thank you. today. And our main guest is Mr. Michael Ford. Everyone knows this guy, especially in USBM. He is a author of 24 books, you know, specializing in occultism and Luciferianism, as well as being a very prominent musician in US black metal and all around occultist. Uh, thank you very much for being on the program, Mr. Michael Ford. Thank you for having me on here. Yes, sir. So the way I kind of want to start today's episode is let's delve into, you know, what your philosophy is. You know, obviously you're in the Luciferianism. You had started the Greater Church of Lucifer, which is now defunct from what I saw on the Internet. Um, let's delve into that. Like uh, yesterday, I had Vincent Crowley on the program. And we talked quite a bit about Satanism. Um, but what I noticed with Satanism, like you look at the Church of Satan, the, the Satanic Temple and groups like that, it's more of like atheists. Um, there's not really like a spiritual side to it. I know the Temple of Set has a very spiritual side about the, the light within. Um, so can you kind of expound, you know, give a general overview? I know this is a loaded question of Luciferianism. Um, I know, uh, like in contrast to Satanism, like I, I just said, like one side's more of like, you know, atheists, you know, using the, the, the archetype of the, adversary whereas uh luciferianism actually has a spiritual side so they're not really like luciferians aren't really uh atheists correct well luciferians can be on the surface and i say this loosely can be atheists so let me start with what luciferian uh, philosophy centers around um in my early initiatory like journey in the 90s I, of course, came across uh, Anton LaVey's Satanism, Church of Satan, and different groups. Uh, I found that LaVey's foundation with the Satanic Bible and all that he did was groundbreaking, and it really made sense in a very like uh, sobering, like a middle-of-the-road way. It presented a, a, a positive, uh, self-empowering um, uh, identification with the archetype of the adversary in the late 60s and 70s in a time when um, people thought everyone was killing babies and sacrificing goats, which they were not. Um, but when it came to Satanism, starting from an early age, and my mother's very religious, my father was not, and I always felt closely connected to the archetype or the symbol of Satan, the devil, and everything like that. And I, I remember my grandmother would show me pictures uh, or show me, tr try to force the Bible on me when I was very small. And I remember cutting out the picture of the devil inside one of her like illustrated Bibles and I kept it. 
And because uh, to me, that symbol represented um, us inner strength, uh, also the intelligence um, to, uh, you know, know what people call good and evil, to, to have a balance in that. So in the 90s, when I was starting and, and I got brought into black metal or discovered uh, what would become U.S. black metal, um, really from uh, from an earlier, like late eighties thing called, you know, Slayer. And I love their lyrics and that got me into metal before that. I wasn't really into metal like that. I did. So I did some piano classes in Miami, Florida in the mid eighties when I was a kid. Um, but it, you know, I, I didn't know what I was going to do, but when I discovered, uh, black metal, Oh, well, this makes sense. Um, I, and I feel very close to that. So Luciferianism developed in the sense that uh, from the tradition that I work in developed from taking Satanism and, okay, well, what, what are the origins and what are the traits uh, that define a Luciferian? And really it's around uh, self-starting self-motivation self-discipline to an extent. Um, Everyone's different of course, and not everyone has the same goals. So there's not a archetypical Luciferian um, because uh, everyone's going to have different interests. But the baseline is understanding that the adversary uh, composes of two aspects, and that's uh, Samael, Lilith, and uh, all of those, what I call deific masks, represent specific types of energy um, that we connect with, uh, within nature and even in more abyssic or uh, a casual type concepts. So Luciferianism first is a philosophy, and it's centered really around the 11 points of power, which are just uh, very descriptive uh, identifiers of the symbols and and what those mean to the individual it presents a potential for spirituality so there there's a baseline of uh, a new luciferian generally they have had an interest in satanism explored it to a certain extent and they might still be connected as a satanist and that's and that's totally fine and acceptable the Luciferian aspect comes in in okay, so there are these traits that you want to do more and explore more than just a basic satanic carnal uh, uh, belief, but also uh, kind of self-empower yourself to go forth and start applying principles of magic. And uh, magic doesn't begin with ritual or chanting something. It begins with our method in thinking, our thoughts, how we apply our thoughts, and overcoming uh, uh, shortcomings that we have that are getting in the way of something that we want to attain. So something, Mr. Ford, if I can jump in real quick. Um, So one of those points of power you had mentioned that uh, – Essentially, Luciferianism is about developing the consciousness to exist after death. That's a factor of it, correct? That's a yeah. That's a, that's the aim. Uh, right. So, so atheists, yeah. you look at you know the regular you know church Satan and you know the Satanic Temple, where it's comprised of mainly atheists. They do mm-hmm. not believe in that. So that is a legitimate spiritual side that yeah. regular run-of-the-mill Satanism doesn't have. Correct. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, to go further on that is. 
uh, the the aspects of how magic kind of uh, is parallel or in harmony with the concepts of uh, quantum physics and quantum mechanics. It's a different language, of course, and we don't know nearly as much as uh, what's out there. But I can tell you the spiritual side of Luciferianism starts with your internal kind of alchemy. And it's kind of centered around uh, what I call the triad of the morning star. And this is a, uh, so this is to measure uh, in some kind of like abstract form uh, where you're at. And that starts with liberation and then illumination and apotheosis. And it's a cycle. So as you formulate and uh, you have to obviously have traits aligned with Luciferianism already. It's something that's in you. It's not something that you just adapt to or learn, but you're going to apply those in a consistent format in your life, specific things, not everything all at once, specific things to your own uh, liking and creating that momentum, that energy, and that focus, which is in fact, uh, the validating point in the spirituality of Luciferianism. It's not a uh, dogmatic belief. I see. Um, and yeah, I definitely picked that up. You know, I read uh, quite a bit of the Bible, the adversary, and that's where I chimed in with that little tidbit about consciousness. Um, so something, you know, you mentioned quite a few things right now in uh, describing, you know, Luciferianism. Um, I see a great contrast with the temple of said, would you consider them to be Luciferian? Oh yeah. Well, uh, you know, Lusa, uh, so with the Temple of Set, um, I was a member of the Temple of Set uh, in the early 2000s for a short period of time. And um, I didn't really fit in to their format. Um, I, I have a lot of friends that are still within the Temple of Set and who've left and so forth. And I have nothing but uh, a great amount of respect for what I learned in the Temple of Set, uh, the kind of uh, methodology behind initiation. So it, it, it is in harmony with that. Uh, it's different in the, in the sense that there's more of a, uh, a focus on the alchemical aspect of it uh, in terms of inner alchemy. Um, they call it uh, kefir uh, from the Egyptian uh, beetle god of... Uh, the dung beetle. Yeah, <laughs> who... Uh, essentially uh, is self-generated. Um, so there are those aspects to it. Uh, one thing that really changed and kind of pulled together all of my initiatory work and started my writings going forward was obtaining a photocopy of a handwritten grimoire from a man named Charles Pace, uh, who was around in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in the UK in London. Uh, he called himself a Luciferian, uh, very much in the way that uh, what you see in my works. Um, he was a, uh, a priest of Set. I uh, called himself a Setanist because he considered Set to be one of the first uh, forms of the adversary. And um, he was actually involved in early Wicca until they decided he was too dark and then they uh, totally like... Yeah, uh, when, when I was in the Air Force, they had introduced like Wicca as a legitimate religion. So on mm -hmm. Sundays and basic training, you know, like people will go to like Catholic Mass or whatnot. Um, yeah. There was a Wiccan thing that I went to just out of curiosity and basic training, you know, just get out of the barracks and all that. Sure. Um, 
and it was like five guys, you know, sitting in just random chairs, you know, in a circle, just talking about, you know, Wiccan topics about the goddess and all that, which I want to, I want to touch upon the goddess aspect a little bit later on today without, um, I, I see a great contrast with like the femininity side mm-hmm. of the occult. So I, I do want to jump into that a little bit later. Um, yeah. So I, I just personal Michael Ford life. I had read uh, the black funeral section of the usbm book and i noticed yeah. that you had quite a turbulent upbringing would you contribute that to uh you finding lucifer the light within absolutely um so being that it was i had a special i would say like if i had to do it all over again i wouldn't change anything about it because it, the perspective that i had uh, allowed me to overcome all of those uh things that happened. And uh, so one thing I was told when I was a kid from whenever my mother would get really mad at me and she was separated from my father when, when I was one. So I never knew them together together. Um, And she told me that uh, uh, the devil was in my father and and he forced himself on her and I was conceived. And Uh, Most people would get, oh, no, especially millennials now would be like, oh, no, that's so horrible. But I was like, oh, wow, my father's the devil. That's that's amazing. And it's something that really inspired me. Um, But having the hardship of living with my father, who was an extremely violent person, and uh, it usually centered around drinking, uh, and you never knew when it was coming. And, uh, it was always horrific. Um, just some of the stuff that he would do, kill our animals, stuff like that. Um, all of those things that happened, uh, gave me insight to overcome and use them, uh, in ways that, uh, can, you know, I, I strove for power in my own sense. Um, and I found archetype, I found, uh, historical figures, that, hey, I recognize those traits to an extent in me, like uh, you have uh, Vlad the Impaler, the historical one, um, and, and just people like that, even to an extent Saddam Hussein, who uh, you know made himself great in Iraq for a while. Saddam Hussein um, actually did a lot for Iraq, you know, when you talk about equality and all that in an Islamic country like that. Um, he allowed women to go to college and, and it was, you know, a great figure, you know, for that individual country. And, you know, something oh, else can be said about uh, relations with other countries like, you know, Western countries and all that, which is yeah. probably why Bush invaded, but not to get too political on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's no. You know, guy, he was really good for Iraq, I believe. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, so. Mr. Ford, um, so. About 2015, you had uh, started the uh, Greater Church of Lucifer, a brick-and-mortar location, Mm -hmm. and it made the news and all that. People held protests there. Um, So is the Greater Church of (laughs) Lucifer completely defunct now, or is it still operational behind the scenes? Well, it's not. It's uh, So when the church opened, what happened was I had not really – uh, we had talked about, my wife and I talked about the idea of having a church for the philosophy and calling it a church really is just for the IRS thing. It's not a religion, um, but uh, it's a careful line you have to walk um, in producing because the philosophy could turn into that 
by the application of it, you know, by validation of that, it becomes faith. Um, so there was a guy uh, who I didn't like when I met him and my wife didn't like him and my associates didn't like him, but I had one friend from Canada who said, hey, uh, this guy can be really useful. He sits in front of a computer all day and does this stuff, um, <clears throat> basically like a productive internet troll. And so I said, okay, well, I, I didn't think he was that bright, but you know, maybe, maybe that's just how he is. So let's see how it goes. He already had meetings out of his garage with my books. And my concern was, I don't want somebody running an organization using my work uh, when it could be presented in a really uh, a different way that's uh, not productive. So um, I decided, I, I, we talked about it and we created a council and I was given the ownership of it and all the rights for the organization. We opened the first, uh, what do you call it, satanic or Luciferian actual building in America in that time. And we uh, were open for one year and it was really an experiment to present the philosophy and to create uh, in some ways, shock waves, at least to touch the psyche of a lot of people, so they would understand there's something else there that's not a criminal thing or something that's negative. And um, so, when the news got a hold of it, it became this media circus. So, um, I had to adapt very quickly in how I deal with all different types of media, from Al Jazeera to uh, I know Fox Center was there, uh, all kinds. And uh, we were open for one year, but the owner of the building was receiving, she, the Catholic group across the street, or they're associated with Fatima, uh, which is this really extreme Catholic organization. Um, they found her and uncovered her home address and phone number. So they put it out to everyone and they started sending her death threats. And so she said, after the year, I'm not renewing. I'm sorry. But, and we understood. So after it closed, we considered, hey, do we continue this? Do we open somewhere else? Um, but the, the thing is, that became a full-time job in itself that you don't get paid for. And we still had all the other things we do. Um, so it had, to, it had to close. It went into the Assembly of Light Bearers, which is really just a a little website at this point that just presents, Hey, this is info on the philosophy. Uh, but the core Luciferian, I guess, if you want to call it a group is the order of phosphorus, which is still, uh, existing. It's more underground, uh, right now, but, uh, yeah, so that's, that's the whole, uh, concept behind that. I had no idea that it had to simulate into the order of phosphorus. It's really interesting stuff. I know you had mentioned them quite a few times on your channel, your YouTube channel, where you go mm -hmm. uh, a lot of information on Luciferianism and other occult topics. Um, very insightful channel. And I, I recommend everyone who's interested in, you know, Luciferianism to definitely check out your YouTube page. Um, so I have a couple questions here um, just about general uh, occult aspects of luciferianism um i mentioned before we had started the episode today that my father was one of the presidents of the theosophical society he was heavily heavily into the occult his mother my grandmother was a phenomenal organist who uh 
did automatic writing and you know just really yeah. you know pre like you know new age stuff like and my father was into doing seances and things like that and um he was really really into a lot of different philosophy more of like esoteric stuff like he could quote like a lot of hindu and buddhist stuff but as well as like western philosophers and occult mm-hmm. things um he claimed he was a luciferian as well as being an occultist but you look at the theosophical society right and it's more of like a very sophisticated new age stuff um where they try to delve into like uh the ancient wisdom and all the world religions and mm-hmm. they attribute that to lucifer um which that group was started by uh madame blood Vatsky, which yep. I'm pronouncing that correct. And Alice, Vatsky, I think. Yeah, and uh, Alice Bailey continued her work. So I had heard quite a bit about them when I was a kid, you know, hanging out with my dad. And he would also put on like Indian gurus, you know, it was like meditate to this, you know, think about this thought. And uh, he had invocations and, you know, very occult things that he would do. Mm-hmm. Um, so how would you consider like the Theosophical Society, which is a, a really big, you know, spiritual society you know they even have roots with the un the united nations and uh they run the lucis trust which you know lucis is um derived from the word lucifer so um how would you compare their type of luciferianism to what you're doing um with your take on luciferianism well so let me let me start with uh this uh like blatovatsky and 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 that movement so around the time that uh, she was putting together and exploring uh, occultism, Crowley was exploring, you had Levi before him. Uh, and what, what I found was that there was not a lot of history available to Crowley and some of these occultists at the time that they lived because uh, there just wasn't the connections. There wasn't the uh academic like historical and uh archaeological uh things coming into place uh egypt they were still going through you had uh wallace budge who did the the early books of the dead and stuff like that and in the past i'd say 50 years from from before now we've had so much more um kind of knowledge come come out just from research from historical records uh things like that to give a a, 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 that gave me kind of a different perspective than maybe what was before now i have a lot of respect for all of those uh organizations before because they kind of led the way towards you know everything that we're doing now um now the concept of lucifer from uh, Blatovatsky and um, Albert Pike, even uh, with the Freemasons, um, is uh, they're really focused on the Roman light bearer and also a little bit of the Isaiah Lucifer, um, but not to the extent. And they present it in a very beautiful, truth bringing, light bringing way. Um, in my studies of, hey, I want to know the origins of the adversary in uh, a wide variety of cultures, but I want to see where the connections of uh, the devil, Satan, and Lucifer came into to, to being one thing and the variants of that. So it started with, uh, and I discovered this uh, Ugaritic 
translation of a tablet from, uh, I think it was uh, 1200 BC, around the time of New Kingdom Egypt, when the, uh, <clears throat> what are they called, the, uh, the sea people overran the city of Ugarit and burn it. And they actually preserved all these tablets by burning it. Uh, and so there's a, a reference to uh, Ashtar or Athtar, um, the rebel. And this is from the Baal cycle, which has Baal, Leviathan. It's got uh, Mott, God of Death, and Asherah, etc. Um, it's where the original El, uh, the Canite God, uh, was. And the Hebrews took that over and they assimilated the Yahweh with El. Anyway, the, the original Isaiah 14 of uh, Lucifer uh, falling, uh, that was from a tale in the Ugaritic poem about Ashtar, the rebel. And uh, Ashtar is later connected through the different pantheons in the ancient Near East, uh, especially with the Arab tribes and stuff like that, with uh, Ashtar Chemosh and uh, Arsu and Azizu, which is the morning star of Venus. And generally they had two of those gods and they were both destructive and creative. Uh, so how is Luciferianism now different from uh, uh, other groups or philosophies is that we're, we are not limiting the concept and the embrace of the dark, uh, of the predatory, of the ab uh, abyssic aspect, which is kind of our primal origin. If you look at uh, what we know about evolution uh, emerging from the ocean, um, the, the old myths of Tiamat, of uh, the different uh, things of coming forth from the water. Um, so Luciferianism delves into a lot of the darker aspects, embracing the satanic uh, concept, but we don't view, or I don't view, um, the concept of the adversary as being a path of destruction. I see it as a balanced one of creating and destroying potentially. So uh, just a quick question there. You talk about the abyss, um, which, you know, Frederick Nietzsche spoke quite a bit about, you know, everyone has their own personal abyss, the groundless mm -hmm. chaos beneath all grounds that yes. is part of human nature. Um, and that's what I explored with my own project. I did an abyss concept over five albums about that groundless chaos, which I think, you know, I'm, I'm ready to put the seal on Goodcraft at this point. I think I succeeded in that aspect, but, uh, um, so kind of delving into that. So would you consider like that being a factor of human nature, something that has to be recognized and embraced like the, the groundless chaos beneath all grounds? Yes. And I, I say that because there's, there's, uh, the seed of our who we are as uh, uh, with our base instinct, our survival instinct, our uh, all, the seed of all of our desires as we are human beings, etc., or animals, whatever you want to call it. Uh, all of these emerge from our base instincts. That is the kind of fuel, the the power that uh, pushes us forward day to day. Now our Higher consciousness, our, our conscious mind, our intellect, is that which uh, in terms kind of guides that and directs it uh, so it's not hopefully completely self-destructive. Uh, but I, in kind of the spirituality side of Luciferianism, I consider there to be an inner abyss uh, uh, beneath the subconscious or within the subconscious, but that's also a key 
uh, towards whispers or kind of impulses or emanations from uh, the casual or the anti-cosmic uh, aspect outside of our sphere of what we call our universe. Um, and that's something that is more of a, when you talk about uh, really getting into black magic, that's an aspect of that. Um, and it's a theory. It's not something that's proven, uh, but it's something that I have aligned my uh, initiatory work towards uh, in aims that if there is a survival of consciousness after physical death, then hopefully I'm in the right direction. That's the aim. I see. So, um, like, are are you a practitioner of like chaos magic? I know some Satanists do that, and you know, there's different takes on what chaos magic is. Um, you know, there's the external form as well as like an internal form. Uh, I, with like your, I, I consider like your deific mass, for instance. Um, it's kind of like a demonic seance where you channel the archetype of what the demon represents and you try to change your perception and, you know, through seance and meditation and ritual. Um, would you consider that to be more uh, aligned with like chaos magic or is that a different type of magic that I'm just being ignorant of right now? No, no. Uh, so chaos magic derived from uh, Peter Carroll and a few other individuals in the late seventies and eighties as a reactionary kind of um, uh, throw against uh, what is like the common concept of occultism, which was based around like ceremonial magic, the OTO, et cetera. So chaos magic developed from uh, um, Peter Carroll and these uh, Freder UD, some other people, uh, as a means of uh, using all these tools in different cultures and in different traditions in a way of changing things now using chaos to create a sense of order. Now, uh, one thing that Luciferianism does not do, and I find this uh, completely a waste of time, is to change paradigms. We don't change paradigms in the, se in the sense of, uh, I'm going to become this way this day. And uh, it, you have your base in Luciferianism. It's your, your um, kind of demonic consciousness, if you will, that intuitive guide. That's what you're building a kind of connection with in your conscious mind to trusting your instincts and that kind of intuitive uh, impulse that you get. And, and things like uh, meditation, uh, seance, or anything like that, all of these things are connected to that kind of guiding uh, intuitive aspect we call like the black flame, which is uh, a self-awareness consciousness uh, and potential. So uh, it's different from chaos magic in that there's a structure with Luciferianism in terms of how you apply your magic. Uh, you can use, there's many different traditions that are parallel and, and kind of in harmony with Luciferianism from uh, some aspects of Celtic paganism. Um, traditional witchcraft, not, not Wicca, but traditional witchcraft, which has a lot of origins in the imagery of the satanic or the devil concepts like that. Um, so yeah, uh, it, in ways, you know, Austin Osmond Spare 
um, kind of laid the groundwork for Chaos Magic and his uh, Book of Pleasure from, uh, I think, his 1912. And then Kenneth Grant's work in the, with the Typhonian Current um, actually fed into what would become Chaos Magic. So it is, a little, it is different from Chaos Magic in that way. I see. Um, just, you know, just tidbit about me personally. I, I know we, you know, you came off a video the, the other week about, you know, the pros and cons of satanic groups and that social aspect of people just wanting to socialize is very off-putting, especially when you look at what Satanism represents. Um, you know, it's all about individual growth. It's very individualistic and, you know, fine-tuning, you know, aspects of your own individual being, whereas these people are just kind of turning it into a social club, just wanting to chit-chat and all that, um, which I completely, you know, agree, you know, is ant antithetical to uh, what uh, Satanism is. But going back to a little bit about that chaos magic, um, um, I view what I would, you know, with my own musical project about springing about creativity um, for me to channel my own music, I would uh, change my perception. I would change my consciousness um, through a means of uh, inhibitory gnosis. Mm -hmm. um, and with that, I would, you know, when you get really drunk, you really change your perception to be narrow and narrow and narrow and narrow. And you can fix that on one specific idea and just obsess over that when you're inebriated and uh -huh. but that's why a lot of people at the bars you know like you get this older guy you sit down in the bar and he just wants to blab about his you know his youth of being on the football team or whatnot because he's changed his consciousness he's unable to perceive the broader sphere and he just wants to annoy the hell out of you talking about some little minuscule factoid but he is so you know focused on that individual thing that's what i can kind of consider using you know intoxicants with a inhibitory gnosis um and what i kind of did with uh, some of my own music i would just kind of fixate on the idea and all that and i would you know you know whether sobering up or not i would record it and just put it out there and it has worked to uh pretty good success i should say i mean i'm not sloppy when i'm playing when i'm drunk but uh um, i'm able to uh channel that idea and it elevates my creativity um yeah. through that and i would consider that you know uh, an aspect of chaos magic if that makes any sense yeah well you know so like in the like around 97 or 98 i uh was a student of philema of uh also kenneth grant's uh typhonian uh thing austin spares us cultus um all these different things uh that i was a student of and i was i decided that i wanted to uh, connect and bring into to and go through the holy guardian angel or the daemon uh, ceremony of Liber Semek uh, or the Bornless One, as Crowley called it. So I recorded uh, on this old cassette eight track, uh, Alistair Crowley's Book of the Law, uh, the entire thing. I create, I did the music, and then I did layers. I think it was four layers of vocals of reciting his damn book of the law, uh, which was the most tedious and annoying thing that I've ever done. One of the most tedious things. And it was so difficult, but I pushed myself through it. Um, and upon doing that, that type of ritual where you push yourself and it feels mundane at points. And then when you're finished, 
uh, and the days after that, your dreams open up, you're, you've, you come into kind of an awakening state, uh, a kind of new way, an altered way of looking at things that's not, um, it's not, not you, um, but it's just you looking at things a little different uh, with the same kind of core perspective. Uh, at that point, I decided that uh, I had this friend that I worked with who said, hey, do you want to do some acid? And I said, uh, yeah, but not, not with you. I'm going to do it alone. And um, I got a, a, a hit and I tried it. I did it uh, three times uh, roughly in the 90s. And it was for a specific purpose. So what I would do was take it. Uh, I would turn all the lights off except for a few things in different rooms. I had a cat that would that would follow me around everywhere. And then I would play this group called Psychic TV and Coil uh, nonstop through the entire night. And uh, this type of thing allowed me to understand how I applied thought to things. Like there was a system to everything that I thought and how I viewed things. And you can, uh, in doing this, understand, oh, okay, uh, this is the way I think. What do I need to change about that? And it changes the perspective. So I, I kind of get what you're saying with that. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen a lot of, you know, especially, you know, in music, there's a lot of musicians who do that. To mm-hmm. just kind of channel, you know, their creativity a little bit. Raphael, I know you had a question in regard to Luciferianism. Now is the time to ask the question. Okay, well, now, after this exposition that Mr. Ford gave us, um, a thought that came up was, uh, because I'm seeing a lot of similarities with Tantra, because um, one of the basic ideas of Tantra is uh, unlike other, uh, unlike most religious and spiritual systems, they actually, instead of avoiding um, negative energies or or even sin, they actually use the, use them and subvert them for their own purposes. So it's basically the idea of uh, harnessing the the energy of the abyss for your own uh, for your own purposes. And so, uh, is tantra something that um, that has also inspired you and uh, your philosophy? Yes. Um... Uh, my doorway into Tantra in the 90s, especially and in the early 2000s, was the Bonpo tradition in uh, Tibetan kind of Buddhism. And let me say this, um, when I say Buddhism or using tools of Buddhism, it's not embracing a Buddhist uh, point of view to where you want to um, uh, give your consciousness and dissolve your consciousness. It's not that at all. Um, it's using techniques that uh, empower discipline and strength. So um, the Agori was also something I studied uh, with, uh, in connection with the goddess Kali and the, uh, the black flame aspect, the motivation aspect of the, the uh, Shakti, the divine fire serpent, if you will, in uh, Tantra. So yes, ta- uh, Tantric uh, meditations and things like that were uh, very key and are, are still part of like Aramanic yoga within Luciferianism. Uh, those are means of, uh, as we know, energy does not die. You can transform energy. It's a, it's it's changed. Uh, so it's about building a strong will to where you can take that energy and devour it and use it and change it 
uh, towards directing out um, with your mind, with your works, with your will towards building a momentum towards what you see that you want to have uh, occur in the long term. Very, very cool. Um, so this brings me actually to another question here. Um, you had mentioned Kali, which is the Hindu goddess that represents time, creation, destruction, etc. Um, but you look at you know a couple other things in the occult. Um, you look at Lilith, which you know you're a big fan of Lilith. She, uh, um, I know, it's a Greco-Roman um, interpretation of Lilith. Um, she represents like the vampiric side of humanity and sorcery. And you look at Hecate um, from ancient Greece, um, she represents magic and spells. So all these goddesses and, you know, I guess a demoness in Lilith's case um, can all represent like a beyondness, beyond physical reality. Do you, do you see like this being like a, a female trait of being, you know, a little bit beyond reality why these archetypes exist as goddesses and demonesses? Well, I, I don't, uh, so I don't view, um, when it comes to invoking goddess, I don't view it as a gender type thing. I see it as, as I look at it as an energy. So, um, and different goddesses or demons or whatever you call it, um, have specific, uh, actions that you work with. And then you have this thing called, uh, let's say with uh, Hecate or Akade, the you have the cult epithets. Now, epithets are descriptions of or titles attached to uh, a deity that has often traits or a location from which they were from. So the traits are more or less a specific type of energy <laughs> that was worshipped in the ancient Greco-Roman or Hellenistic period. Um, invoking uh, Hecate uh, for different things from necromancy, from experiments with uh, spirits, uh, the dead, uh, not in the divination sense of, uh, you know, tell me what to do. Uh, that's very unluciferian, uh, but it's more of an experiment of uh, uh, getting that contact and that kind of what people call the paranormal aspect, um, which uh, is really an eye-opening thing if you have that happen, even though you can explain it consistently. Um, and then you have Hecate as a uh, witchcraft and underworld goddess as well. And as uh, Hecate Phosphorus, which is the bearer of the torches, um, you have Lilith. Lilith has a completely different type of energy. Um, if you're exploring the, let's say the Hebrew or uh, Syrian uh, manifestation of Lilith that is the queen of demons, especially in Luranic uh, Kabbalah. Um, and she is one equal, the equal half uh, along with Samael, which makes the adversary or what people would call Satan. Um, that aspect, you cannot have uh, one without the other. Uh, so what Lilith uh, represents in terms of esotericism is that she is the motivating fiery devouring um what you would call it's a, a design to have consciousness survive uh to continue in time uh and she is the motivator which motivates samael which is more matter but it's also force and power so there's a 
kind of harmonious uh, balance with those two aspects, which make the adversary. We have to have those within us. And I think most people do. Uh, it depends how you look at it. Uh, and that goes into things like uh, a mother goddess type thing, which I don't really connect with. Um, but I do connect with uh, Lilith Lamashtu and different aspects like that. Yeah, I, I know a lot of people um, consider Kali, you know, especially Hindus, as being the mother goddess. And uh, what she represents is, you know, that beyondness of time, creation, destruction, especially that creation is like I focused on that quite a bit when I was younger. Um, so about that creation, I, I believe that is the closest we can get to divinity is through creativity, like genuine creativity, not, you know, novel things or anything like that. It's sure. you know, a self-challenge where you're pushing yourself forward and you're creating the best expression that you can. I think that brings us closer to divinity than anything else in the world. But granted, you know, my own personal views, I believe like the, the physical reality is very profane, like a Gnostic would, um, and, you know, I could go on a tangent for hours about this, but uh, mm -hmm. um, um, I whatever like relinquishes like my conscious mind and you know the representations of physical reality, you know, is positive. That's where the intoxicants of alcohol comes into play with music and all that, but it elevates creativity, and that's always a good thing in my eyes. Um, so going to that music, uh, music is you know a very creative aspect. You know, like. Um, music is the only form of art that is expressed in time more than in space. I mean, yeah. you know, there's, you know, operas and things that represent physical phenomena, but music itself, you know, everyone can understand the emotional appeal of a Wagner symphony. Um, so before we jump into black metal, you had mentioned prior that you had liked some classical music. So can you give a little insight into what Michael Ford appreciates on the classical music spectrum. Well, I like uh, Christoph Penderecki a lot. Um, if you've ever heard his, like, uh, uh, it's a about Hiroshima. It's a piece on Hiroshima. He he does a lot of other stuff too, but the he has a kind of cacophony with his uh, the way he applies instruments. And it's this, uh, it's very dark and very unsettling. Um, it's a, a very beautiful form of classical. I also like uh, Arvo Pert, um, who has, he's probably more attuned or closer to the early or like the medieval style of music uh, creativity. Uh, Arvo uh, Pert has done some amazing works as well. He's still alive, uh, isn't he, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's, he's getting yeah, up there. Composer. Yeah. He's not very, uh, his work isn't very dark, but it has a lot of uh, emotional, uh, I think, validation to it. Yeah. Um, he's done some really great stuff. I love uh, some of his organ works. I know he had that fratris piece. If I'm mispronouncing that, you can hit me up. Uh -huh, that, yeah. yeah. Which is with uh, either a violin and piano or a cello and violin for those uh -huh. two instruments. Really love that piece. That was one, one of my actual gateways into classical music um, was through that. Um, so like, what about like Baroque, you know, classicism, Romanticism and modernism? Anything yeah. Well, uh, so, like, uh, the, the basic ones, uh, Baroque, I like, but I have to be in certain moods. Um, uh, more or less, I won't listen to that in, like, at home. If I'm, uh, the only place I could hear that is if I'm in a, um, 
like a coffee shop. Um, I, I like it. It's just not something that grabs onto me. Um, I do like uh, Carlo um, Gesualdo, um, who is an Italian. Uh, he was an Italian uh, Duke, I think. And uh, Gesualdo, he did this, um, all these layers, like he wrote chorus uh, choirs for uh in a way that no one else had at that time. And if, if you can uh, find his work, which they, they all kinds of people put out CDs now, but uh, this guy was a very colorful figure in that um, he was known. And this is how I found out about him. And then I liked his music is, is he was known for having <clears throat> killed his wife. Uh, he caught his wife cheating on him. This was in medieval Italy. So he caught uh, this countess cheating on him with this other nobleman, and he found out the baby was uh, theirs. And uh, he one night went in there and killed all of them, and uh, like dressed them, like dressed the guy up in a girl's dress, left his corpse out, and left. And he went to his other estate. He never got uh, pers- uh, prosecuted for it because the, the law was he's a nobleman and. Uh, it, it, it was just a whole different time. So I, I saw, you know, this, I was like, Oh, this looks cool. You know, that's my kind of black metal instinct coming out. And his music is all on themes of religion. Um, but it's easy. Like in just listening to it, you can attribute uh, like for me, instead of God, it would be the adversary and you can uh, kind of like feel emotional stirrings from that. Um, so, uh, that's one, um, there's, you know, Wagner, I do like Bach, um, to an extent, um, there's different ones. Uh, I like some medieval period pieces that they've managed to recreate. Um, Carl Orff, of course. Um, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. It seems like, you know, really kind of picky about what you like to listen to in regard to classical. I know there's so much out there and it's a very daunting type of music to even get into that. You really need a guide, like, especially for metal heads. It was like, you know, composers that resonate on a metal level, like having that metal spirit, um, which I think, you know, Wagner definitely has Carl Orff, you know, know, very powerful stuff, but you know, there's, you know, I think the Romantic period and you know, some modernist composers are really good about channeling that that metal spirit. So let's delve into your music here. Um, everyone in the United States black metal scene knows about Black Funeral. Um, but I think, you know, delving into your work and your philosophy, I think, you know, like uh, the black metal is epiphenomenal like a byproduct, you know, on, you know, just a result of your own personal philosophy that it's, you know, a, a vehicle to channel that message. Um, and, you've, you know, I think waters of weeping is probably the most inspired USBM album I've ever heard. Oh, wow. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Like straight up hundred percent, you know, not ever going to say otherwise, you know, in regard to that album, there's some very inspired aspects to the album that I think is beyond, uh, just being a sheer musician, there's a message that has to be conveyed and black metal is that conduit to channel that message. So um, 
with black metal and you know you've been involved with it for so long now um what is your like general take on the usbm scene um uh, or black metal in general we won't limit to just to the u.s but when it comes in you know in regard to usbm um you're definitely one of the forerunners um do you think you know black metal is inherently evil inherently satanic um what is your personal take on what like black metal is i know i asked a few questions there but let's go on the uh the satanic topic well i think you know especially in the early 90s when black funeral when i started black funeral i wanted to present you know so soroth before that was a very a very focused satanic uh, a juvenile satanic because I was a kid and I didn't uh, have the knowledge I have now and the experience, but uh, it was based on the satanic black funeral had a, a strong satanic and what would become Luciferian core uh, outlook to it. But it also went outside of that into presenting uh, darkness and different uh, uh, moods of darkness. And I considered what people call darkness and evil um, a de- a, what they call depressive, like ruins and things like that. All of that is uh, something that inspires me and doesn't make me feel that way. Um, so that's what I was trying to present with early Black Funeral was that predatory instinct. And uh, it was kind of reflected in the, the lyrics at that time. Now, at the time of Waters of Weeping, uh, that definitely was more of a uh it's presenting the luciferian spirit uh without uh trying to push doctrine on people or trying to even present a balanced perspective it's showing and expanding in darkness and darkness is uh from which we all emerge it's uh, it's our origin and it's something that all is made from uh all is created from um so in that sense, it's, uh, you know, even today with Black Funeral, it still has the satanic Luciferian foundation, but it goes much beyond that and exploring uh, the abyssic or the, uh, the kind of concepts of the underworld as a conduit through this music. I find music to be a very powerful medium in that it can open, it can change your mood, it can change your uh your feelings and it can, it can uh, kind of correlate and move along with feelings that you already have or have deep inside and can inspire you. Um, so I think that's a powerful, very powerful tool uh, that if you have the opportunity to use it in a productive way, it, it certainly has, uh, it can be used that way. Um, Black Funeral, uh, you know, around 2010, when I did I had the, uh, so I've always had problems with lineups for Black Funeral because in the 90s, no one wanted to play black metal. Everyone wanted to do the uh, beat, like the, the breakdown beat, uh, death metal, uh, you know, thing. And I hated that. And I, I had this vision. This is what I have to do. So I would get session members and they would always like flake out. Uh, either to, you know, right about the time we're getting something uh, done. Um, we could have gone on a tour in the late nineties with dark funeral and Lord Airman, I used to have a lot of contact with, and uh, 
I couldn't do that because uh, just getting session members was impossible. Um, but around 2010, I, I had gotten so frustrated uh, and uninspired with Black Funeral right after Karanzan Blood Rite and uh, the Vukalak CD that I wasn't going to do it anymore. I, I, you know, I, I was very busy with my, my upcoming, my books then and Luciferianism and my ambient ritual music. But um, uh, Asgore from Drowning the Light uh, suggested, hey, uh, can I do session and we'll collaborate? I said, sure. And that actually reinvigorated Black Funeral. Uh, he's one musician that uh, we think along the same lines and I have total trust in what he does. I don't have to worry about, Oh no, what, what am I going to uh, get sent here? Like uh, there's a, we have a very cool uh, working uh, kind of collaboration there. So that satanic essence, I guess, in black funeral is still present to this day. Okay, um, I'm going to jump in to start connecting the, the music to the, to the more spiritual aspects. Um, one of the main themes of the left-hand path is the, the rejection of conventional practices and, uh, and rituals. And do you think that there is a parallel between that and music? And what I mean is, do you think that there are certain ideas that could not be expressed by conventional music? So they can only be expressed in a in a destructive and uh, and experimental manner for most people. Yes, I I can actually when I think about what you just uh, what you ask and what you were saying, I think of uh, what what they used to call the um, Ufnadir or uh, not necessarily berserkers, but the ones who would do the wild hunt festivals in Northern Europe. Uh, from the Viking period all the way through the medieval uh, into the Renaissance. And that is uh, kind of the uh, assuming a lycanthropic type state of mind for, for an evening, if you will. And that is to kind of shed all of those uh, limits, restraints, and just uh, general mundane uh, uh, banal thoughts that, that we have, I think black metal and extreme music in general can uh, uh, bring to color things that uh, you can't put in words necessarily, or things that uh, would uh, that you would share with someone in a public place. Like if you play black metal in a public place, um, it, it's not a, a an art form that will work with everyday people. And what I mean by that is that their minds are towards uh, just whatever is pop or whatever is popular culture at the time. But uh, the cult of black metal or death metal, or to some extent, um, that speaks to a few who understand that kind of primal way of directing that energy out uh, into music. And, it, and it's actually beneficial in that way. Very, very cool. So I know you all, you also have a, like a foray in the dark ambient and, you know, ritualistic type of music. Um, can you elaborate a little bit about that? I mean, is, does it coincide with uh, your Luciferian mindset of, you know, like putting on deific mask and things of that nature? 
um, through like a meditative type of textural soundscape? Yes. So um, Octaya is what I've been releasing or doing pieces on uh, for a few years now. And what I found is that whatever I'm working on book-wise, so when I, when I work on a book, and I, I actually have five books um, that I'm working on now, but I don't work at them all at once. I cycle through to avoid um, just getting burnout or just, you know, to step away from it. So I cycle through my workings. So there's an academic uh, aspect of where the research comes in, but then there's the ritualistic, which is the reconstruction of specific rites for purposes. And then there's the writing of that. But in doing those things, even the rituals, there's things that I can't express in words or in what I'm doing until I compose it musically or and create a soundscape around it. And when I do that, that's a whole different like catharsis in that process. So a lot of my Octaya albums are, and it's dark ritualistic ambient, um, basically what I'd call it, um, expresses those concepts that I'm working on at the time from, um, you know, demonic possession, the concept of that, uh, which is I'm a, I'm a huge horror fanatic. I love horror films and books and I separate, you know, uh, Luciferianism and magic. I separate that there's a, a line between that and horror fiction. And I understand that very well. And I don't, I don't let one irritate the other, if you know what I mean. Um, so yeah, definitely the, the ritualistic aspect of music, which I've kind of brought into black funeral in the past few albums um, is to weave different uh, like concepts and atmospheres of horror and darkness and the otherness uh, that's beyond us in with a traditional kind of metal structure. Very, very cool. That's a lot of ambient projects. I know there was like the cold meat industry push in like the early two thousands, yeah. pushed a lot of like industrial and ambient projects and it kind of oh. carved out its own little niche um, and, you know, like metal adjacent type of music. Um, it's really cool. So would you consider like a, you know, dark ambient to be like metal adjacent, like sharing some of the same spirit of metal? Um, to an extent, let me say that, you know, you mentioned cold meat industry. Uh, I got my start in uh, dark ambient music and death industrial from Carl or Carmanic uh, uh, from cold, the owner of cold meat. Uh, he signed Valfor, my uh, death industrial uh, project back in 95 with death magic on his, it was a sub label of cold meat industry called death factory. And he put my first album out on his label, which was amazing because I mean, it was a great, because I love that label. And, um, even back in those days, that was a little more adjacent to black metal. I think, uh, it, it shared a lot of fans, a lot of listeners, um, dark ambient too, I think can, uh, attract, uh, people that are interested in metal, but you have different types. You have some, uh, metal enthusiasts who that's all they like. And, uh, then you have some that, uh, will listen to other things and some that'll say, okay, dark ambient is good for mood music or whatever that is. So I think as, as long as it's inspiring, um, and a lot of them 
are very uh, deep in concepts. Um, very, they're they're not shallow. Just uh, whatever expressions of just random sound. There's a whole kind of uh, wheel turning uh, in a lot of these different projects, and that's what I have a lot of respect for. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so. I actually have more questions and I know we're running short on time at this point. Um, if you want to do a part two, I know you're working on new music now. Once that is done, if you want to come back, um, I, I will have more questions for you. Um, yeah, yeah. Just before, you know, we end today's episode, I do have a couple more questions for you. Um, what are your general thoughts on the general climate of uh, black metal nowadays? Has this lost, you know, its way? Has it become too commercialized, or is there uh, there's still like life being breathed into it? What's your personal thoughts? Well, I, I think that black metal had began as a very underground and almost like how punk did in the seventies. Uh, as a rejection of like specific formulas in what was death metal at the time uh it was presenting a new different way and uh from 93 uh on there were waves of where it became really really commercial and bands that started out really underground got very very um commercial and not uh necessarily by their own design it just kind of uh took them along and i guess they adapted they you know but uh, even now, today, I've seen it for almost 30 years now. And it's uh, you have a lot of bands who come out at different times, depending on what the trend is. And those bands, uh, probably a few of them out of uh, you know so many, are really good and promising. And they'll develop and become better. Um, and then you have ones that breathe a new type of like spirit into black metal without going too overboard or outside of that uh, paradigm. So I, I think that there's always a potential in uh, new artistry uh, in the scene. And you can't, you can't really, I found it very counterproductive to say, um, you know, I don't care about the scene because it's just trendy because uh you know, then you're missing out. There's a lot of things if you just know where to look uh, for what you might like. Yeah, it's a hard thing for people to actually find, though. There's no, like, specific guide of, like, your personal taste in extreme metal and yeah. what resonates with that. I mean, on classical, you can, you know, look up things on Google. It's like, give me the darkest classical symphony ever written and things like that, and you'll get a lot of, you know, recommendations in that regard. But for black metal, um, if you're into a specific type of black metal and, you know, it's executed really well, um, recommendations, just, you know, searching on the internet is going to be very uh, mixed, um, you know, with uh, what, you know, whatever projects are paneling. Um, Raphael, before we end today's episode, did you have one final question for Mr. Ford today? Yeah, okay. Um, while we were in the beginning, when we were delving more into the, the more uh, the Luciferianism and the spiritual side, one thing that stuck with me was the emphasis that Mr. Ford gave to exploring the origins. And so I think I've noticed about many, many metal bands and musicians, it's quite a cliche uh, and a trope that metal musicians in general are interested in occultism. But I've noticed that most of them seem to stick to more modern authors like Crowley, for example. So my question is, 
Do you think there is a need among metal musicians to delve deeper into the sources? And I ask this because, for example, you have books about Mesopotamian demonology and Babylonian magic. So in a sense, you are doing that work? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the reason that uh, I, go, I went so far in the research in uh, look at Dragon of the Two Flames, uh, Sabeti, Maskam Hull, uh, even a book called Fallen Angels, which is about the Enochian tradition of the Watchers. Uh, all of those things, uh, they have a depth and a perspective that cultivates the uh, Luciferian spirit of what we call occultism now. Um, Crowley, I, if, so here's my general rule. If I see a band that has anything about Crowley in it, black metal wise, I for the most part, will never listen to them. And they could be the best band in the world, but I know Crowley uh, uh, painfully well, and I don't uh, connect that with uh, the darker feelings of black metal. Um, but uh, in fairness, a lot of uh, young musicians who come into black metal have this nagging inspiration and attraction and identification with the satanic archetype and sometimes Crowley gets mixed into that and for someone who hasn't had a lot of uh what do you call it experience or knowledge about occultism uh, i could see how they get uh get into that and that's just kind of an age thing and uh there's a lot of things out there what i found benefited uh my work was going back to the pre uh christian religions um uh, like Babylonian uh, different temple cults and things like that, because you can learn a lot about uh, not only the, the traits that I consider Luciferianism likes uh, uh, conquering your obstacles, conquering your enemy. If you have to destroy something or, or crush your enemy, you feel great about it. You don't uh, feel guilty and sad about it later. Um, and also uh, contributing to art and uh, elevating uh, the people around you, the culture around you. Um those are things that I consider Luciferianism uh, or Luciferian. Um, but when it comes to black metal, you know, I, I, I see things sometimes like you have the, the bands that are, they say, Oh, um, they get very extreme into certain avenues. And I think a lot of that is just a, a, a youthful immaturity that, that will change over time. That's interesting. Um, so yeah, it's a very insightful question about like, you know, going beyond Crawley um, into, you know, the Babylonian myth, you know, and things of that Mesopotamia mm -hmm. um, that you actually are an expert of. Um, I've seen quite a few videos that you've done on your YouTube channel. I highly recommend that for uh, people interested in your take on Luciferianism, which I think you're at this point in time, probably the most prominent figure um you know from the satanist wing of luciferianism yeah. uh, very very cool stuff um thank you so i definitely want to thank you today for being a, a guest on the show um yeah i know you're working on more music you had uh, mentioned that is you know some really strong material um so yes. once that is finalized uh you're very very welcome to come back and we can talk about that as well as i have some more questions um to ask you so thank yes. you very much, Mr. Ford. Thank you. I want to throw out there one, uh, going back to something just real quick, um, a band or there are two bands that I consider fantastic when it comes to presenting like uh, 
like Slavic or ancient Babylonian myths. And uh, that would be Hate Forest and Blood of Kingu. Holy um, shit, you're my hero. You know what? That last Hate Forest album that just came out <laughs> December of last year is probably one of my favorite albums that I've heard in like a decade, honestly. Yeah. Um, it was fucking good. And I know there's like a lot of folk, you know, Ukrainian folk influences in there. Yes. Um, which I spent some time in Ukraine. Um, and uh, Ukrainians are very proud of their country. I'll say this. They view Ukraine as the egg or or the chicken. And uh, they view Russia as the egg that the chi- chicken shat out. So they view like, you know, Kiev is a very ancient city. Yeah. And you look at, you know, Russia being you know way younger than Kiev. And that's the general mindset in Ukraine. I fucking love those people. Yes, that Hate Force album is fucking awesome. Uh, Hour of the Centaur is what that is called. I thought that was like, this is what immortal should be, honestly. Like, I yeah, that and it was fucking phenomenal. And um, I tell you, uh, Roman, uh, one of the guys behind those bands is a very, very intelligent, like, uh, deep thinker and an, uh, a student of history. Um, uh, something that I, I share with him. Um, I love that the the works that they do over there and you know ukrainian or slavic paganism has origins for uh the vampire concept and myth in and it relates to nature and the cycles of nature from drought and rain and all these different things and actually some of the slabs used to worship uh and make offerings to vampire spirits and water spirits uh incidentally i had no idea holy shit I learned, you know, a lot of things during this episode today. So I want to thank you again for being yeah. part of the program. And thank you, Raphael, for being the co-host. I will be ending this episode with a song from Waters of Weeping. Thank you very much, very much Mr. Ford. Thank you. Cheers.